Hello, women who are changing the world. This is Dr. Alicia Vosidlo. And this is Jaden Wilcoxon. And we welcome you to the WGLC Thrive and Revive, a podcast series made for you and your alumni and follow-on program experience. This podcast is hosted by the Women's Global Leadership Consortium as an ongoing learning initiative of the Study of the U.S. Institute's Madeline K. Albright Young Women Leaders Program. We have four themes that we'll be discussing. These are the themes of our institutes, environmental issues, public policy, civic engagement, and economic empowerment. Our purpose is to provide you with content surrounding women's leadership so you can go out into your communities and apply these concepts to make change. During today's episode, we are covering the second theme of the Albright Young Women Leaders Program, Public Policy. It will be hosted by the University of Kansas. So let's hear from them now. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Alicia Vosidlo, and I'm the Academic Director for the Kansas Women's Leadership Institute. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Heather Geetha Taylor from the School of Public Affairs and Administration at the University of Kansas. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much, Alicia. I am very delighted to be here today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Well, thank you. The pleasure is all ours. Dr. Getha Taylor's research focuses on the public sector workforce with special emphasis on the changing dimensions of public work, including enhanced expectations for boundary-spanning collaboration. She explores the ways in which collaborators work to develop trust, illustrate collaborative competencies, and adapt leadership styles and practices. She also works on leadership training and development projects. Her research bridges theory and practice, and she seeks to understand the ways in which established frameworks and assumptions influence or are influenced by contemporary realities. Why don't we get started? So, Heather, tell us a little about yourself and what you do here at KU. Thanks, Alicia. So, uh, as you said, I'm a professor here in the KU School of Public Affairs and Administration. I'm very proud to be a part of that program, that school. And I teach courses on a variety of topics in public and nonprofit management. So I teach courses on human resource management. I teach courses on collaboration, leadership, and the history of our field. I teach undergraduates, master's students, doctoral students on the Lawrence campus, the Edwards campus, and now uh, I teach the Leavenworth students as well. So uh, I'm a little bit uh, all over Kansas. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> and my research also aligns with my teaching, which is great. My research really centers on, as you said, collaboration, HR, uh, leadership topics, and I also serve as editor-in-chief of Public Personnel Management, which is an international journal on public sector personnel. That's amazing and very important work. Thank you. So as an academic, you've probably heard of the phrase, research is me-search. Is that the case for you? And how did you find yourself doing this work? That's a really interesting perspective, and I think it's indeed true. So my interest in public service, I think, really does go back to my youth, actually. And my first job was in a public library, and I really believed in public service. I did not know what public administration was at that time. It's not typically a career that people talk about a lot. I mean, certainly you know about teachers and police and firefighters, but public administration was not a term that I was familiar with. But what I was familiar with was my library. 
And I believed at that time, I already recognized that it was a great equalizer, that everyone could come have equal access to knowledge. And for me, that was really powerful. That was a a real resource for our community. And my job at the time was shelving books. I didn't have a leadership position. I cleaned up a lot of Cheerios out of the children's (laughs) section, (laughs) but it really made an impression on me that we were in the business of public service. And I really cared about people, programs over profits. And that's what public service is all about, is making sure that we serve our communities. And so I do think that that experience shaped my journey. I really believe that it made me a public administration enthusiast, even all those years ago. I love how you note that education is an equalizer. So when you started college, were you seeking out courses that kind of met that? Yes. I knew that I wanted to do work that would have a positive impact on people in my community. I didn't quite know how to do that, though. And I was familiar with business management. But when I got into the course catalog, I found something called public administration. And I found that this was much more suited with what I wanted to do. So I enrolled in the MPA program at the University of Georgia. And I was just energized by the readings, by what we were learning in our classes, the instructors. All of it was just such a pivotal moment in my life. And I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And so it was that opportunity that really laid the groundwork for where I am today, because it was in those classes that I was doing a lot of reading about women and leadership. And I think this is what leads me here today, actually, because all those years ago, my first research project was under the direction of my professor, Dr. Jeffrey Brudney. And I read a book for his class, and it really opened my eyes to the fact that women had made strides in leadership and government, but there was still an enormous gap. And I was wanting to understand that a little bit better. Why do we have such a gap in women's representation? And at that time, I was studying the federal government. So that was really the foundation for where I am today. And unfortunately, (laughs) I'm still addressing these same research questions. Why do we see leadership gaps in our public service? And yes, that's still one of the big issues that we talk to our young women about in the Institute. So that's a great segue into my next question. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your research, if we could. One of our themes for the Young Women's Leaders Institute this year is women in public policy. From your work in public administration, why is it important to have women's voices present in public management? It's a great question. And for me, there are several uh, responses to this question. So one of the first reasons we care about women's representation in public service is that public jobs are public goods. So there's the expectation that it should be open, equitable, competitive access to public jobs. And this is in line with the theory of representative bureaucracy, that government should look like the community it serves. Now, that representation is considered passive representation, just looking like the community it serves. But we're not just interested in that. We're also interested in active representation, that government organizations pursue the goals of the individuals in their communities and and the stakeholders whom they serve. This is why it's so important to have women in leadership, that those perspectives are represented. That's one. Secondly, it's really important. We know from the mentoring literature, it's really important 
that women can actually see other women in positions of leadership, that they see a career path for themselves. And I know that many women have been in organizations where there are not other women in positions of leadership. And the literature shows us that's very problematic in terms of charting your own career path. And I think back to my days as a graduate student at the University of Georgia, where all of this began. And at that time, we did not have women on the faculty. And I even wondered, is that a career path for me? Right. Um, and fortunately, a lot has changed in academia. But at that time, it certainly was a question. So that's number two. Number three, we face such pressing issues when it comes to our community's well-being that we need diverse perspectives to understand problems and solve those problems. So from a public management perspective, we need diversity of thought to be able to understand the issues that are most pressing for our organizations. And this is something that affects all of us in all of our different home locations uh, we see this time and time again that we're not represented in places where decisions are being made. So I want to build on that idea. One of your areas of research is building boundary-spanning collaborations. What is this? And is there a gender component to this? So I'm curious, is this something that comes more naturally for women? That's super interesting. So boundary-spanning collaboration is really the idea that we cannot address societal problems from a siloed perspective. No one organization, no one individual, no one sector has all the information, resources, time, energy, uh, and even leadership as a resource in order to solve these issues. We have to work together. And people have always worked together. It's just that our organizational structures, our policies, our procedures have stood in the way of us doing that effectively. So we have to revisit the idea that community, communal working, collaboration, which is co-laboring, is what we need to be able to address these pressing issues that we face. This is an issue across the nation, around the world, and even right here in our backyard in Lawrence, which is addressing homelessness. And we know that no single organization, no individual person, no individual sector can solve that on their own. We have to work together. We have to understand homelessness in order to address homelessness. So collaboration is a tool that's essential to do that. In terms of this interesting uh, question about whether collaboration comes more easily to women, I think there, there are a lot of threads to this. And so first of all, I'll start by saying I do think there's an expectation that women are more relational in their leadership. They're more, I'll say, nurturing and, and maybe collaborative. But I think there are some reasons for this expectation. Our traditional hierarchical organizations, our command and control structures, those were built by men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, women were typically excluded from, I will say, the architecture of traditional organizations. They're still, in some cases, excluded from the architecture. And so what that means is that we have these pervasive gender images that we don't even recognize in some cases. We don't recognize that our traditional structures are, quote unquote, masculine, or that they reward more masculine traits. And that a collaborative or a relational approach stands in opposition to that. So, for instance, in public management, we talk about the idea that we have for a long time emphasized or valued things like rationality, 
quantitative analysis, logical decision-making. And that was seen as very masculine. On the other hand, if you take a a human-centered approach, if you take a relational approach, if you take a qualitative approach, that was often seen as soft skills that were not valued Mm -hmm, as much, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And so when you say collaboration requires much more of a relational approach, then you're saying it's not been valued traditionally within our organizational structures. One example of this, I think, is emotional labor, service with a smile. And women tend to be occupationally segregated into more of the caring professions where emotional labor is needed, but maybe not valued, actually, or recognized and rewarded. And even when they aren't tapped for that position, oftentimes they're called on to fulfill that position. Exactly. Exactly right. So, you know, when we talk about these ideas, and, and sometimes we might characterize them as stereotypes of, of gender and whether or not women are more or less collaborative, this becomes a problem in our traditional hierarchical settings where women may adopt a different leadership approach that doesn't match our expectations of what a leader is. Mm-hmm. And they might get punished for that, right. that we expect women to be more relational. So when they're direct, that's a problem, right? That that she doesn't fit the mold. Or we expect someone to fit the, the quote-unquote great man theory of leadership. And if a woman doesn't do it that way, then she's not an effective leader. So it's really a double-edged sword for women in terms of should we embrace more relational leadership or should we try to illustrate what's been rewarded in the past? It's a really tricky terrain. It sounds like it. And one of the things we talk about when engaging in acts of leadership is that we know we're going to disappoint people. But the key is to disappoint people at a rate at which they can absorb. <laughs> right. right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So knowing this, knowing that there are so many different skill sets that are required or necessary to build meaningful collaborations, what tips could you provide our women when they want to do that? Well, one of the more recent studies that I did on collaboration really was trying to understand what keeps collaboration strong over time. As I mentioned, the example of homelessness, this is one example where we're not going to solve homelessness today, this week, this month maybe this year. It's going to take a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so I did a study looking at what keeps those groups going over time so that they can begin to make progress on their issues. And what I found is that understanding why you're collaborating is so, so important. That will keep you going if you have a, a justification, a mission for your collaboration. But you also have to pay attention to not just the why, but the how. So the logistics, right? The governance of the effort. And I don't think that anyone would be surprised by this necessarily, but it does require an investment. What I mean by that is that if you want to collaborate effectively, and that is achieving something together that you can't do on your own, if you want that advantage, you have to give careful attention to things like celebrating small wins, making sure that you are engaging in relationship building. That's that's a big one. You're also really focusing on communication. And I know this is something that is uh, right up your wheelhouse, that when we think about how we communicate in collaborative settings, it's really important. And one of the things that I found that kind of surprised me is that successful collaboratives, the people involved in those, they all are essentially engaging in what we call narrative polyphony. Now, that's just kind of a fancy term for 
they're singing the, the same song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone brings their own instrument. Everyone has their own instrument to play, but we're all on the same page when it comes to music. And so what that tells us is that there's agreement on the really key moments they've experienced. There's agreement on their mission. There's agreement on what does future success look like. And if you can find that agreement, if you can begin to sing the same song, you're much more likely to succeed. Now, that's not to say it's not without challenges, because there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, First of all, resources are a big deal. And so women and men have to learn to be cobblers of resources to collaboration going. They also have to give careful attention to, believe it or not, stress management. Stress affects collaboratives just like it affects individuals. So here's the big takeaway. Collaborations have a regenerative power that even if your particular group doesn't achieve what it wanted to achieve, those relationships that you have with the other people can be used in another setting or another time to rise from the ashes, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and basically, it illustrates a phoenix effect that you can try again. And so those relationships, that's what's moving collaboration in our communities. That's what's keeping collaboration strong. And if you have a bent for relationship building, sustaining those relationships, you are much more likely to be able to make a difference on the things that you care about. This is outstanding. Even the metaphor that you use, that we're all singing the song, just using different instruments or our voices are different. And you said a couple of things that really stood out to me. One, celebrate the small things, right? Too many times we're so hard on ourselves that an accomplishment in our minds has to be something big and we have to wait to celebrate something big. But what I hear you saying is that you don't have to wait. We can celebrate these little achievements as they come and that we should. And the other thing is that this takes time, doesn't it? To build meaningful collaborations, it's a process. And we know that leadership is a process too, and that it's not something that overnight it's just going to develop and it's going to be perfect. It sounds like these relationships, for one, require a lot of work, but that if we put in the effort, they're going to be very meaningful in multiple domains. Absolutely. So I want to shift gears just a little bit. And I want to hear about your experiences and the role that diversity and inclusion play in public administration. How have you seen these initiatives evolve in recent years? It's a great question. And it is a a pressing priority for public management, both in theory and in practice. So scholars are working on this issue. Our public managers in our community, they're working on this issue. It is something very near and dear to our heart that we want to advance the dialogue on diversity, equity, and inclusion in meaningful ways. Now, in our field, in public administration, I would say that one of the the biggest pushes to really advance DEI efforts happened in the late 60s, early 70s, when a group of, of prominent scholars said, hey, wait a minute, our community is not actively addressing the inequities that we're seeing happening in society. We're a little bit siloed. We're removed from the civil unrest that's taking part in our in the communities we're supposed to be serving. And that sounds very reminiscent of what we're dealing with today, unfortunately. It sure does. And so there's a lot to learn from that moment. And it was at that time where there was a lot of push around advancing the theory of representative bureaucracy, which I mentioned earlier. This really stood in contrast with our dominant values at the time, which had been effectiveness, efficiency, making sure that we're very attentive to cost savings for government. And all that's important. We're not saying we don't we want to get rid of any of that. 
but we also want to add equity. We want to add equity as one of the pillars, one of the value pillars. And in fact, my late colleague and the great George Fredrickson, distinguished professor here at the University of Kansas, he was the one who said that's the soul of public administration is equity. And so this was really a milestone in the development of our field to say we have to be doing more. Now, it took some time before we actually turned the mirror on ourselves, though. (laughs) And we said, let's take a look at the inequities that are happening in our organization and the inequities that are happening in, in academia. And so It is a process. It's a long story. We have come a long way. We have a very long way to go. And in terms of how this has developed over time and where it's going in terms of the evolution, what's what might be next, you know, some of the things that are interesting to me and valuable to me is that public administration always has to pay attention to how society is changing. We should be a reflection of society. And so at the very beginnings of this movement, we were starting to talk about racism and sexism. And that has evolved over time as our understanding of diversity has evolved over time. So certainly in the 1960s, 1970s, there weren't as many people familiar with the idea of gender identity, right? This is something that we are increasingly turning our attention to because our understanding is growing. And I think it's really promising that if we stay connected with society and we pay attention, we have a great opportunity to really enrich the way we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and address the entrenched systematic biases, discrimination that we have all been a part of. And how do we pay attention to those? So I think it's incredibly important. It is a topic that we have to pay careful attention to. And especially those of us who benefit from various sources of privilege, how do we recognize and take a step back and begin to empathize, begin to put ourselves into the shoes of others so that we can see where inequity is happening and how we can use what we've been given to successfully, hopefully successfully address those for the future. Thank you for those amazing insights. As you noted, it's just incredibly important that we continue these efforts all across the board at all different levels to make sure that there's equity for all. So I do have one final question. And you've been giving us a lot of words of wisdom so far, but I'm going to push you for some more. Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for our women who want to engage in leadership work? Yes, it's hard with professors, right? We can talk forever about these things, and we we offer far more advice than probably anyone wants to hear. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I think that one of the big things that I want to end on with our conversation today is just a reiteration that we need women in public service. We need women's perspectives, and we need them in leadership positions to advance the perspectives of women in society. We need that view. You know, one of the things that I'm reminded of any time I think about women in leadership is actually a lesson from when I was a child. And my parents were always very encouraging of me and anything I wanted to do. And they bought me a sign. I still have it today. And it says, girls can do anything. I love that. Me too. Me too. And it really was a source of encouragement. I think that we do find that we tell girls, hey, you can do anything in response to this idea that maybe there's a lack of confidence there, that they need more confidence. And I've read where, you know, that's one of the explanations why we don't have more women in leadership is a lack of confidence among women. And I just want to say that may be part of it, but it's just one part. And I 
absolutely encourage leadership development programs, those investments in yourself, really addressing confidence. But there's so much more to this story. And we need careful attention to the ways in which organizations are providing opportunities, mentoring, career paths, strategic planning. There are so many more pieces to this story, and I would never want us to place the blame on individuals for a systemic issue, that it's not your fault that you're just not confident enough to be a leader, when in fact, maybe there are existing pressures, policies, procedures that are sort of standing in the way and perpetuating some of these long-standing issues. So for instance, occupational segregation or glass ceiling, the ideas that I presented earlier where we don't see women as the type of leader we've had in the past. So we continue to perpetuate this problem of, of representation. So I just want to say that, yes, we want to encourage individuals, but we also want to address systemic issues. So the advice is, yes, go for leadership, work on your leadership, take leadership opportunities that make good sense for you and what you want to do in your life. But also when you achieve positions of leadership, use that to help advance this conversation, to help change the systems, the policies, the procedures that stand in the way of a much more accessible leadership landscape for other women. What awesome advice. I mean, ladies, you heard it. We need you. We need you in positions of leadership. And we're here for you. We want to help you get there. You have so many allies and confidants here in the WGLC, and we believe in you. So even if you're lacking some of that confidence, we're not lacking in the confidence for you. So Dr. Getha Taylor, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with me and our women. I really appreciate your time and look forward to hopefully continuing this conversation. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you for listening to WGLC Thrive and Revive. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the work of women's leadership and how you can thrive and help others thrive through your work and dedication in empowering women. Join us again for another fun and informative episode. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to share it with your cohort. And don't forget, follow us on social media at Global Women Leading on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We look forward to getting connected. As always, thank you for tuning in. See you next time.